You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 220, by Rudolf Steiner, Twelve Lectures, entitled Awake for the Sake of the Future, translated by Jan W. Gates. This is the last lecture in the series, Lecture 12, entitled Hermann Grimm and Friedrich Nietzsche in relation to the new life of the spirit, moral and anti-moral impulses as seeds of a future order of nature given in Dornach on January 28, 1923. Among the personalities who have experienced the new life of the Spirit and have developed in our era a feeling for the way we can draw these impulses, these insights, right into the fabric of our lives, two individuals come to mind, Hermann Grimm and Friedrich Nietzsche. Both Grimm and Nietzsche lived strongly within the spiritual and intellectual life of the present time. They both tried to discover how human beings can experience within their souls what happens today in the spirit. We can see that Hermann Grimm tried to describe human beings or a specific personality out of a clear understanding and sensitivity to our modern era. With Nietzsche, it is more a matter of learning how he himself inwardly felt the inner and outer forces active in the late 19th century and knew personally what it meant to live in the late 19th century. As we watch Hermann Grimm portraying humanity in general or an individual in particular, it is clear that he always had a picture in his imagination. His words had a pictorial quality, His descriptions evoked vivid images. And yet Grimm's profiles often made it seem as if those he was writing about carried a great weight on their back. Even in Grimm's book about Michelangelo and his work, you have the impression that Michelangelo labored under a great burden. The artistic giant literally had to carry an enormous weight on his back everywhere he went. Grimm himself experienced and spoke about the nature of this burden. Quote, we modern human beings, he said, labor constantly under the weight of history. Close quote. Indeed, we modern men and women do stagger under the weight of history. Even if we sat at our desks at school and were too lazy to care about studying history, we would still have felt burdened by the study of history. From the time we entered elementary school as six-year-old children, we already felt the weight of what we were expected to learn about history. We still are not free, for we carry history with us today as if it were a heavy sack thrown over one shoulder. Turning to Friedrich Nietzsche, we come to a personality who shook almost hysterically because of what he perceived as the constraints of modern intellectual life. If you looked at him closely in his daily life, it wouldn't matter 
if he were on one of his travels in Italy or taking a summer stroll around the Swiss village of Sils Maria, he would shudder. He habitually shuddered and shook himself until his upper body bent forward. And if we looked carefully, we would see that he wanted to shake off history, to get rid of a kind of historical knapsack that in fact we all carry on our shoulders. Nietzsche clearly felt the weight of history, for at a comparatively early age he wrote an essay entitled On the Use and Abuse of History for Life. He pleaded with his contemporaries to push history out of the forefront. You will lose your lives if you drag history with you wherever you go. You do not know how to live in the present. You ask at every opportunity what people in olden times would have done in this or that circumstance. But you do not bring anything creative to the fore out of your own thinking, feeling, and willing in order to live as men and women of the present day. I have brought these two individuals to your attention to show you how modernity affects the human being now. Hermann Grimm always described human beings as if they were laboring under a great weight, and Nietzsche himself lived as if he were constantly trying to shake off a burden that he had to carry on his back. We must take these individuals into account if we want to capture the effect of intellectual and spiritual life during the last third of the nineteenth century and beginning of the twentieth. When you go more deeply into the matter, you will see the human being exhausted and gasping for air under the press of historical knowledge. It is as if the modern human being were a dog who is overheated, lets its tongue hang out and pants for air. Likewise, people living in the modern era are burdened down by history. They gasp and whimper under its weight. If you wish to understand humanity during ancient times, we too have to look into the past with the same vision as the ancients possessed. It would be extremely difficult for us to grasp their experiences unless we brought up the same pictures that human beings saw long ago. In order to do that, we distinguish between what the ancients experienced in their day and what we no longer experience in our day. Now, I would like to make some preliminary observations that will help us to let the knapsack of history fall to the ground. Observing nature in ancient times inspired the creation of myths, for the ancients were able to draw myths out of the creative powers of their souls. For them, nature's phenomena appeared before the human soul as a living perception of the essential processes in the world. The modern human being can no longer create myths out of scientific observations. Indeed, we no longer create any myths. When a modern person tries to create a myth, it is so literary and contrived that it seems forced and wooden. We have lost the capacity to transform what lives in the natural world into myths. At best, Modern human beings can try to interpret ancient myths. Unable to create myths, we turn our attention to human history. That change occurred not so very long ago. 
We have lost the power to create myths, and yet we also find it difficult to establish a right relationship to history. That is the reason why in the 19th century historicist professors of law have argued that we cannot create the law. Rather, we must study the history of lawmaking. The historicist school of law, and this is something most remarkable, is an evidence and admission of the complete lack of creativity among human beings of the present age. The historicist professors of law say that they cannot create a framework for what is, in quotes, right in human relations, and therefore they must study the history of laws and promulgate only the laws they have learned from history. That was the situation that arose at the beginning of the 19th century. Particularly in Central European law schools, the prevalent viewpoint declared that the modern human was not yet capable of living in the present and therefore should live only as a human being in touch with history. Nietzsche, who studied in schools or universities that venerated historical precedents, wanted to shake off this approach and even wrote an essay on the use and abuse of history for life. Looking back at his student years and at everything that had been brought to him about ancient times, Nietzsche commented, quote, No one can breathe in this atmosphere. There is dust everywhere. It prevents you from ever breathing freely. Away with this kind of history. Let us live in the present. Close quote. In the late 19th century, the historicist approach to knowledge generated anxiety. This anxiety, associated figuratively with the gnashing of one's teeth, arose whenever humanity tried to observe and understand nature. I am referring now to the emergence of anthropomorphism, that is, the insertion of a kind of invisible human hand into scientific explanations or models. In ancient times, humanity was able to experience what was observed in nature, because human beings knew that nature was created by the divine. Nature itself was divine. Likewise, human beings took their inner substance that was connected to the divine and brought it together with the substance connected with nature. They came face to face with truth. Modern people, however, shudder whenever they suspect that anthropomorphism has crept into the study of nature or of humanity. It sends shivers up and down the spine. Modernity brings with it a fear of anthropomorphism. We still experience anxiety in the face of anthropomorphism, and yet we do not even notice that we ourselves tolerate anthropomorphisms. In physics, we talk about the elasticity of two spheres and refer to an external impulse, parenthesis, it could even be a nudge set in motion with your own hand, close parenthesis, that is transferred to the elasticity in the sphere. We do not even notice the human intervention in this example. We only take note when the human impulse seems to have a global effect. The fear of anthropomorphism developed in response to the excessive historicism in modern civilization, and we still live under the influence of this anxiety today. Our anxiety about historicism and anthropomorphism 
breaks every connection between humanity and the outside world. Above all, the connection between the human being and the living experience of the Christ being has been severed. The experience of Christ has to be a living one, not simply a knowledge rooted in the historical record. This is not just a matter of avoiding the seemingly historical or undermining the myth-generating capacity of historical interpretation. Rather, it is a matter of actually reaching behind what is hidden and grasping its essential reality. When, today, we want to speak about human striving, we typically do not speak out of our own immediate experience. We interpret title Parsifal or some other early work or tradition. We interpret, clarify or explain, but our explanations do not illuminate. We obscure rather than enlighten through our so-called clarifications. This unfortunate situation comes about because we lack the courage to truly grasp the world with our souls. On the one hand, we have established a way of observing nature that extends from the hazy origins of the universe through increasingly complex stages leading to the death of what lives in our world. Morality has no living place in our world. It is only an abstraction. I have often mentioned this state of affairs. On the other hand, we have no capacity to see that the foundation we lay today through our moral impulses becomes the basis for moral consequences in the future. The consequences of moral actions today become reality in the future. As I mentioned yesterday, this capacity has been undermined by the collapse of scholastic realism. Thus our moral impulses have become merely thoughts about intentions, and we, as part of a higher order within the structure of nature, do not know what to do about this. At the very most we look at the condition toward which the earth ought to be transformed. To be honest, We have to say that morality is nothing more than a cemetery where moral ideals that we have thought about are buried. We have no real idea of how a new planet can grow out of our decadent, decaying earth. Nor do we understand that the new earth will develop out of the impulses humanity is developing today. Today we lack the courage to think to envision that moral impulses are the seeds for the world of the future. But the courage to connect a new world order with a reality that allows us to prepare for a new physical planet that will replace our dying earth is sorely needed. Now we shall look at the other side of the natural order. Across from the moral order stands the natural order, which has brought about our awe-inspiring modern natural science. The thrust of the natural sciences now affects every aspect of human culture. Farmers today know more about modern science than they know about a spiritual worldview. Under what circumstances have the newer natural sciences developed? We can make this clear by using the example of electricity, 
a discovery that was quickly followed by its practical application. At the turn of the 18th to the 19th centuries, a physicist was dissecting the leg of a frog. The frog's leg came in contact with the metal window frame, and the leg twitched. That is how the physicist discovered electricity. That happened less than 150 years ago. And now electricity is a central ingredient of modern civilization. But it is not just a matter of producing changes in daily life. The very substance of scientific explanations also changed very rapidly. When people born in the third quarter of the 19th century were going to school and studying physics, no one thought of describing atoms as anything other than tiny, inelastic balls that bumped up against one another. Physicists even calculated the force necessary to produce the impact between atoms. It had not yet occurred to anyone that an atom would be described as an electron, as if it were an entity that consists entirely of electricity. But the latter is what is taught in schools today. The extent to which human thinking has become saturated with electricity is a fairly recent development. Now we speak about atoms as if they were tiny suns surrounded by orbiting electrons. When we look around us at the forces within the universe, we presume that electricity is everywhere. This permeates our entire culture, including our manner of thinking. If we did not ride trains so frequently, we might not have associated atoms so quickly with electricity. If we were to look at the ideas that humanity had before the age of electricity, we could see that at one time an observer of nature still had the freedom to recognize the spiritual aspect of nature, at least to the point of thinking about it abstractly. A tiny remnant of scholastic realism still remained to facilitate this perspective. But electricity is so pervasive in the lives of modern human beings that it gets on our nerves. Our sensitivity to electricity made it impossible to maintain a connection to the spiritual. The effects of this go even further. The true light that floods the space of our universe is increasingly compromised in its purity and even suffers the degradation a being seen as something similar to artificially generated light. When we begin to speak openly about these things, anyone who is completely committed to the value of the electrical culture thinks that we are out of our senses. But that is so, because a person who thinks a criticism of electricity is nonsense is someone weighed down by excessive historicism and who cannot find a connection to the immediate present. With electricity we enter a sphere that presents something different to the imaginative observation than what we receive from other aspects of nature. As long as you deal only with light and sound, that is, optics and acoustics, then you do not need to make a moral judgment about what is manifest in a stone, plant, animal, light in its form as color, or the world of sound is tone. For 
you still may perceive a slight echo of the reality behind these ideas and concepts. Electricity, however, drives away this echo. If, on the one hand, we cannot discover the reality of moral impulses, then, on the other hand, we also shall fail to observe and perceive the moral essence within nature itself. If you ascribe a real power and effect to a moral impulse, so that these impulses inherently have both potential and power, just as the seed already contains the germ of a fully grown plant, you may be called a half of a fool. If you were to go still further and attribute moral impulses to natural processes, then you will be called a complete fool. If you have felt an electrical current in its spiritual nature surging through your nervous system, you would know that electricity is not just a force of nature. Electricity is also something moral. Whenever we enter the realm of electricity, we are giving ourselves over to something moral. If you put your finger into a closed circuit of electricity, you immediately feel that you have expanded the realm of the inner core of the human being, out of which there arises what is moral. The electricity that resides within the human being is also the area out of which your moral impulses originate. Whoever experiences the totality of electricity at the same time experiences the moral within nature. Without meaning to do so, modern physicists have created a certain kind of hocus-pocus. They have theorized that the atom has an electrical nature and have forgotten, because of the general consciousness of our time, that when they present the atom as electrical in nature, they have ascribed a moral impulse and therewith a moral nature to it. But now I have just said something that is not so. By making the atom into an electron, you are not attributing to it a moral aspect, but rather an immoral essence. Within electricity, all kinds of moral impulses of nature are swimming, but actually they are immoral instinctively evil impulses that must be overcome with the help of the higher worlds. The greatest contrast to electricity is natural light. Looking at electrically generated light, we see a mixture of good and evil. We have lost a real perception of evil in the natural order. We do not notice that by electrifying the ideation of atoms, they then become conveyors of evil. I described in my recent natural scientific course that by attributing electricity to the constitution of the atom, it causes atoms to become purveyors of death. Physicists continue to put forward an atomic theory and assign it everywhere to matter. As soon as the atomic form of matter is identified with electricity, it also identifies nature with evil. In that case, atoms composed of electrons are tiny, evil demons. It has been argued that the modern characterization of nature is on its way to being bound to evil. At the end of the medieval era, those who had been frightened by 
Agrippa of Nettesheim and Tritemius of Schwanheim, and those who later sensed that the evil poodle in Goethe's Faust was being permitted to run around loose, tried awkwardly to express this fear. Their ideas may have been incorrect, but their fear was well-founded. For when physicists declare, as they do today unthinkingly, that nature is made up of electrons, then they are actually saying that nature is composed of little demons of evil. To the extent that we accept this explanation of nature, then we must also accept that evil is being ascribed to the creators of the universe. If we wish to be human beings of the present age and not be satisfied to go along with the explanations of the past, and if we base our knowledge on reality, then we will see that electricity in nature is also morality. If we observe our surroundings today, we see pictures of a moral reality, one that is wrapped in evil. If anthroposophy were either fanatical or ascetic, a great storm would be brought to bear against the culture of electricity. Of course, that would be absurd. For the only people who could talk this way have a worldview that does not take reality into account. They might say, quote, Oh, that is the work of Araman, away with it. Close quote. But you can only do that in the abstract. Those who would organize a sectarian gathering and thunder about protecting themselves from Araman are the same ones who leave the meeting and step right into an electric tram. So the entire storm about Araman, which sounds like such a virtuous position to take, is nonsense. You cannot avoid the fact that you have to learn to live with Araman. But you must find the right way to live with him, for you cannot allow yourself to be overpowered by him. If you turn to the final scene of my first mystery drama, titled The Portal of Initiation, you can see the effect of unconsciousness in this matter. Read this scene again, and you will understand the difference between being in Araman's presence unconsciously and confronting him in full consciousness. Araman and Lucifer have their greatest power over human beings when we are unconscious of being in their presence, for then we can be manipulated by these beings without even being aware of it. This is pointed out in the last scene of the Portal of Initiation. Thus the power of the Aramonic aspect of electricity over human beings in our culture can hold sway only so long as we are unconscious and unaware of the significance of the electrification of the atom and blindly assume the electricity is harmless. Thus we would remain unprotected from the fact that nature, bound up with electricity, produces a nature made up of tiny demons connected to evil. It is frightening to witness the extent to which today's scientific research is demon idolatry, a worship or veneration of demons. We must become aware of this, for by awakening our inner consciousness we also become aware that we are living in the time of the consciousness soul. Why do we not recognize that we live in the age of the consciousness soul? On the one hand, we are weighed down by an inner paralysis, 
and a preference for the explanations and ideas generated in the past. And on the other hand, we are unwilling to work with new ideas and to immerse ourselves in understandings that open the way to a healthy future. And if we were to feel as Nietzsche did, we would be flooded with criticism. And yet, like Nietzsche, we still would be stuck in old forms. Nor would we be able to show the new way that would bring us forward. Nietzsche himself was not able to point out the direction in which future development ought to go. Just look at the brilliant essay that Nietzsche wrote in his early maturity, titled On the Use and Abuse of History for Life. In flaming rhetoric he urged his readers to throw off the weight of history and to become human beings living fully with the present, for humanity needs to replace the primacy of the past with the living present. Then what did Nietzsche do? Nietzsche took Darwinism and amplified it. Out of animals' species arose the human being, and so the human being would continue to evolve over time into a superhuman being. But this superman remained an abstraction, a scarecrow without any substance. You could say almost anything about the physicality of the superman, but it is impossible to form a real imagination of him. Certainly we can refer to scientists today as math whizzes, as Nietzsche might well have done, for scientists rarely do more than substantiate their research through mathematical calculations. And scientists, such as Goethe, who do not use calculations, are thrown out of the temple of natural science by the scientists themselves. The critical issue, however, is found elsewhere. Courage is the key. To recognize the reality that stands behind moral deeds. To see the moral idealism in nature in its proper perspective to understand that moral impulses are the seeds for a natural order that may be attained in the future. To acknowledge that nature's order today with its electricity is a moral order as well as an anti-moral order connected to evil. We must have courage to see moral qualities in nature in the right way. In addition to courage, a true understanding of the human being is absolutely necessary. If an individual recognized an immoral impulse that would damage his or her physical body and tried to understand this impulse from the perspective of today's physiology and biology, it would be foolish to expect helpful insights from conventional science. We could learn about the function of the circulatory and nervous systems, but there would be no mention of morality. Likewise, scientists talk about electricity and even recognize the presence of electricity within the human being, but they have nothing to say about the fact that the electricity within the human being can absorb immoral impulses. Today we talk about the absorption of oxygen and many other examples of absorption in a material sense, but you never hear that the Electricity within the human being absorbs the immoral impulses within us, and that this phenomenon is a natural law like other natural laws. 
nor is it ever mentioned that the light that we take into our bodies from the outer world conserves the absorption of good moral impulses. We need to bring spiritual knowledge into the science of physiology. We shall be able to achieve this only when we free ourselves from the ideas and theories espoused in the past that irritate and suffocate us and make us trudge along as if we were carrying a heavy burden of knowledge no longer useful. We have to remember that with the collapse of scholastic realism, our ideas and concepts are just words that no longer guide us to an experience of the reality behind the ideas. We do not live into our words any more. Otherwise, by following the sound of words, they would convey to us something living. Recall how often I have said that the spirit that holds sway in speech is a wise spirit much wiser than a single human being can ever be. You can discover this at every turn if you develop a feeling for the wonder that inspires and lives within the formulation of words. Think about the example I mentioned a short time ago. It is one that holds true in other languages too. Take one of the verbs for remembering or recalling. The infinitive form to recall or to remember is bazinin. The reflexive form, I myself recall, is ich besinne mich. The present perfect, I have recalled, is ich habe mich besonnen. Footnote translator's note, the German word for the infinitive besinnen and present tense, ich besinne mich, contains the word zinne, S-I-N-N-E, which refers to human senses and sense perception. The past participle besonnen, encompasses the word for the sun, zona. Thus, when a person recalls something, he or she is drawing something up from memory and placing it once again in its sense reality. That is, quite literally, one is remembering, bringing elements from memory back into the world of the senses and material reality. End of translator's footnote. Steiner again. Typically, a teacher drags the weight of the historical ideation of grammar into the classroom, not bothering to toss it away and begin afresh. Rather, the teacher lamely points out to the students the simplest grammatical terminology. Quote, when you say, I myself remember, it describes an action in the present. I have recalled is called the perfect tense of the verb and refers to something that happened in the past. But, when I use the perfect participle besonnen, I should feel the root word sun and think I have placed myself in the light of the sun. When I use the present tense of the German reflexive verb ich besinne mich, I put myself in the service of the sunlight within me. The O contracts and becomes an I capital. That is to say, that when the sun lives within me, it becomes material. When I give myself over to the sun, I discover that I no longer have contact with the senses, for they are already within the sun. By means of my senses, I move out into the world. I become a part of the cosmos to the extent that I receive the past within myself. We need to directly experience speech and language 
We must feel what it means when an I, small small I letter, becomes an O. It is significant when, as human beings, we recreate this change in the world as we speak, when we allow an I to be transformed into an O. These things indicate how important it is for us to return to the fundamental bases of our humanity in order to understand the profound longings that became manifest in the lives of distinguished human beings like Hermann Grimm and Nietzsche in the 19th century. When we understand the longings of human beings in our day and recognize that the art of eurythmy also arose out of human longings, then we shall be able to create an art of movement that arises out of fundamental bases of our time. That is why it is so important that anthroposophists accurately grasp the fundamental bases of the human being so that they can also create an art like eurythmy in our age. This depends upon our capacity as anthroposophists to feel what truly constitutes a renewal of civilization today. It is no longer important whether we carry history around with us, but it is of utmost importance that we are human beings deeply rooted in the present. That is the consciousness that must arise in the souls of anthroposophists. Otherwise, what it means to be an anthroposophist will again and again be misunderstood. Time and again efforts are made that show a false idea of what could be done in the world today. Quote, couldn't we bring just a little bit of eurythmy into this or that venue so that people will get an idea of what eurythmy is? Close quote. But to introduce a taste of eurythmy or anthroposophy here or there can never be our goal. In all honesty, we must place in the world exactly what anthroposophy really wishes to be. Otherwise, we shall not move forward. If we are constantly taking into account what seemed valuable in former epochs, we shall never accomplish the things that I have spoken about, nor shall we discover how these things must be achieved if humanity itself is to avoid death. Yesterday I asked you to imagine a complete transformation of thinking, umdenken, and a complete transformation of empathic understanding, um. Empfinden. That is, I encouraged you to turn your thinking and knowing inside out and to fundamentally renew the way you think and understand with the forces of your heart. We have to do more than observe from the outside in order to come to a different way of imagining or picturing the cosmos. We have to muster our courage so that when we speak about electricity, we can use moral and anti-moral concepts in our discussions. Human beings in the modern era shudder at thoughts like these. We find it unpleasant to realize that when we enter an electric tram, we have to sit in Araman's seat. Many of us would rather ignore this and prefer to organize sectarian gatherings where people can talk about how to protect themselves from Araman's influence. But in fact, the most important task we have is to know that from now on, the development of earth existence calls for the integration of natural forces into cultural life. That means 
that the active influence of Araman must be taken into account as a reality. We have to be fully conscious of this in order to put ourselves in the right relationship to it. It matters if you develop a knowledge of the tasks that belong to a true anthroposophist. Anthroposophy is not a kind of replacement for the confessions of faith in the past. There are many well-educated individuals who have concluded that anthroposophy has become boring, but anthroposophy is neither boring nor attached to one or another religious confession or worldview from the past. It is not important whether you have an affinity to one or another worldview. Turn your full attention to anthroposophy. As anthroposophists, we are committed to anthroposophy in its present stage of development. As anthroposophists, who understand the consciousness of our time, we must feel an objective devotion within our hearts to the divine heart of the universe. Clearly, that may be attained by pursuing the paths I have described in these lectures. The end of Lecture 12 and the end of the book, Awake for the Sake of the Future, Collected Works, Volume 220, translated by Jan W. Gates. Twelve lectures given in Dornach from the January 5th through the 28th of 1923.